Welcome to a podcast on fire on Young and Dangerous Free and the Miracle Fighters. 25th of January 1996. 30th of March 1996. 29th of June 1996. Those are the release dates for the first three Young and Dangerous movies. These are the trials and tribulations uh, and the uh, chopping adventures of the Hung Hing Trial Boys, uh, adapted from the comic book Teddy Boy. And that became a phenomenon. It became profitable. So why stop at two adventures? Let's make three. And in the end, they made six and a pre- six and a prequel. So there you are. But therefore, we're here to review the third outing uh, featuring the boys uh, here in Young and Dangerous Three. Also, the young clan take their crazy pills and goes off to make movies. This time, supernatural comedic shenanigans with a looming sorcerer's championship at the end arrives here in the form of 1982's The Miracle Fighters. My name is Kenny B, and with me to further the Young and Dangerous coverage, regardless if we stop at free, and to confirm to himself that his drink isn't spiked, it's just those nutty young brothers doing their thing, is Paul Fox of the East Green, West Green podcast. Hello, buddy. Hello, hello. I'm fresh out of a coma and I've lost my memory. What happened last time? <laughs> sorry. I'm just kidding. No, sorry. Those movies, man. Um, those require a little bit of a freeze frame to appreciate, like, oh, did I just see that? Yep, that happened in those two edits. And where did that idea come from? That's my so- sort of experience with uh, Yun Wo Ping's movies during this period. And um, boy, does it feel like um, they're on at least a creative high. <laughs> what, what do you think about that looniness? Uh, what does that do to you? Is, that, is it just like, well, that's pretty creative and fun? Maybe not sober? Yeah, it definitely makes you wonder kind of, uh, you know, what kind of medicinal soup they were taking back in the day. But it's all good fun. I mean, and you don't see stuff like that these days, which is uh, a, a shame for sure. And we'll come back to the fact that these are sort of a family of traditional martial artists that just started making live cartoons for a bit, uh, culminating with mismatched couples, I suppose, before, uh, you know, Jun Ping transitioned into Tiger Cage and what have you, and the nothingness uh, went away. But uh, uh, nothing bad to say about uh, mismatched couples. Uh, and I'll, I'll have to tell you, I mean, it's, it sounds like I'm ragging on Donnie, but I still find that little streak of Jun Ping movies to be some of my favorite Donnie Yen movies because it's just so wild to see him directed in a wild fashion, in drunken Tai Chi and mismatched couples, and he's up for it. He's, uh, he's up for that um, crazy, also physical energy. And uh, I can watch those on a loop. Granted, I haven't watched Drunken Tai Chi more than once, but I just remember, yep, this feels like a Yun Wo Ping joint from, literally, <laughs> joint from that, uh, that era. And uh, Donny is uh, welcome to join because uh, it looks good on him to act, um, act zany along with, um, along with the Yuns. Yeah, I mean, why do we? Why why can't we have four mismatched couples movies? You know, the first one and three sequels, rather than uh, four Ip Man films. I don't know. That's the question on my mind. Well, if um, Breakdance comes back, uh, then um, and Donnie seems to be game for physical acting still. Then because uh, it, it's not like he does a breakdance move and then help me, help me, I fall and I can't get up. It, it seems like he's able still, so who knows. Uh, maybe even mainland China wants to bring back memories of old by remaking a movie like Mishmatched Couples, who knows, because uh, granted, we, we know that they do tap into old classic Hong Kong movies and uh, and launch a remake over in mainland China to sort of refamiliarize um, 
audiences with what was in the new package so why not uh, why not go um with uh, the full sort of uh, dreadnought drunkard movies mismatched, mismatched couple sort of run and um uh, and um uh, create havoc that way but uh yeah it's um uh, we, we we have it stored the memories are stored paul uh, thankfully these movies aren't that elusive and they've always been um, available in a decent uh, quality including miracle fighters but we'll get to it eventually uh, we're gonna run through some uh, contact information really quick and this is co- this is uh, this is contact info yes it is it is podcast on fire on the podcast on fire network and uh, this show along with all the other uh, episodes in the same category is available on podcastonfire.com. We also do shows on Japanese cinema, Korean cinema. I, I, I wanted to get back to Japanese cinema because uh, we, we, we are sort of finally bringing back that series, Japan on Fire. I've told the story before, but uh, we were in the middle of the Hideo Gosha series, uh, director Hideo Gosha of Free Outlaw Samurai fame. And uh, my co-host uh, Coffin John couldn't really balance uh, podcasting with real life, and that's entirely understandable. So... I actually uh, wrote to uh, uh, an author and a writer who provided um, two articles of Midnight Eye, uh, to Midnight Eye, on the director, and he's uh, actually written uh, one one two volume book uh, in French on Hideo Gosha and uh, Robin Gatto joined me for the concluding episodes of Japan on Fire, and that will then finally allow me to start uh, crafting a series of sorts on anime because the people have asked to hear coverage of cultish anime titles whether to- totally adult titles uh, or you know cultish anime titles in general and, and paul is going to join me eventually here for for an episode on fist of the north star but we won't and i say won't because i just simply refuse uh, it's not in my blood do a episode by episode recap of the tv series that runs 155 episodes that's just that's just not for me, Paul. I know it's kind of a big deal for some people to break down episodes, whether on American TV or elsewhere. And they do it well, and they do it with enthusiasm, but I will lose interest in half an episode, I think. I just couldn't do it, man. It's And, and also, if you know Fist of the North Star, Paul, some of the episodes are a pretty rigid structure, you know. Nothing that much different happens from episode to episode. You know, they walk, they walk, they encounter stuff. And Ken Ken goes, and then it's over. You know, yeah. So. Somebody said explodes. Exactly in white too, and no, not red. Uh, in the movie, it's all uh, it's all gory and red. But uh, in the TV episode, um, people are filled with milk most of the time. But uh, <laughs> you know, they gotta do what they it gotta a, do, man. It does a body good, like the old commercial says. Right? <laughs> Indeed. So uh, it, it's gonna be fun to sort of look back on Fist of the North Star because uh, I, I enjoy the movie, and I'm slowly but surely working my way through. The TV series uh, that uh, was produced uh, at the same time, really. They, they did the movie as they were producing the TV series, I think, or during a small break. At any rate, uh, at any rate uh, Japan of Fire is, uh, is back and is coming back, and it's uh, fun to continue to produce. Uh, find us, uh, all the other shows on, on our network is uh, available on the site. Uh, find us on social media by clicking the relevant links in the, in the show post uh, or the buttons to Facebook and uh, Twitter and to our iTunes feed and to our Instagram as well, right there on the main page. And if you if you join us over on Facebook, yeah, feel free to join the discussion group where we post show updates and discuss uh, a variety of topics, do polls and so forth. And uh, your contribution is definitely welcome. We have a good-natured group over there except paul is a bit rowdy but uh, that's uh we, we gotta 
we've got to keep him in check from uh, from uh, trolling people. No, just kidding. That's all, right. That's all right. I'm a huge troll. Nicest man possible. <laughs> that wouldn't hurt a fly. Unless he came after one of Paul's uh, favorite um, actresses or something. Like, don't you dare talk shit about Steffi. Don't you dare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then I become the Hulk troll. So, <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and uh, I do um, uh, some writing over on SoGoodReviews.com. Uh, Hong Kong movies, Taiwanese movies, Category 3 movies. Uh, my video hub is LisaKVideo.com. I'm actually not going to do Category 3 video reviews anymore. I didn't post nudity in them, but um, obviously YouTube said no at one point. I found Vimeo, and Vimeo actually allows for... You, you can tick sexually suggestive content, and I thought that would be fine. There's still no nudity. But the suggestive content. Uh, no, my account got suspended a little while ago. So like, can't go anywhere. So just going to have to just write about Category 3 movies from now on. But um, there, there it is. A man is coming down on me hard. And, uh, and uh, Paul has a lovely, lovely, lovely podcast that uh, is called East Screen, West Screen. And uh, even though... At the time of recording, it's been on uh, some recording hiatus uh, due to life and so forth. It's going to be there, uh, regardless if, uh, regardless if uh, when the next recording is. So I hope uh, you'll keep the archive open because it's a valuable archive of uh, reviews from uh, from uh, from the east and from the west. So uh, I hope that's the the case. So uh, yeah, regardless, uh, you you want to throw out a little plug for your website, then you're welcome to do so. Yeah, it's uh, East Screen, West Screen, and you can find it over at Comcast.com. And uh, as Ken said, we're on hiatus for a bit, uh, still evaluating where we're going to be going next. So um, we'll let you know if we have future content. Indeed. And uh, we are going to take a musical break and play the uh, the theme for... They they don't rehash the theme, which is uh, refreshing. The old Young and Dangerous theme isn't in Young and Dangerous 3. They have a new one, so we're going to play that. And after a musical break, we're going to review the third adventure of the Hong Hing boys in Young and Dangerous 3 released the same year so is that a good sign that they cranked out three movies in a short span of time well we'll let you know after a break And welcome back in the first review of this podcast on fires, Young and Dangerous 3. And uh, we obviously have uh, discussed Young and Dangerous 1 and 2. So there's going to be some spoilers, I suppose. Uh, If you haven't seen uh, 1 and 2, then feel free to do so. But uh, we uh, are going to talk about it. And the plot from the Love HK film review of the film goes as follows. When we last left our Hong Hing buddies, Chicken, played by Jordan Chan, had just killed his lover. And Chan Ho Nam, played by Yikin Cheng, was mourning over Smarty, played by Jiggy Lai, who was left in a coma after Young and Dangerous 2. As the third one opens, Chicken rejoins Hong Hing, Smarty reawakens but is suffering from memory loss, and Nam is given more responsibilities by benevolent head boss, played by Simon Yam. However, muscling in on their turf uh, are the upstart Tong Sings, led by the nasty Crow, played by Roy Chung, and Frankie Mchihung, who 
if you remember guys, uh, who played the nice boss B in the first Young and Dangerous, but here he plays a different character. I don't, do you remember him, did he die in Young and Dangerous 1 and 2, or he just... Yeah, I think he dies in the first film, if I remember correctly. Right, so that that's their justification to confuse us by recasting Frankie mm, on the other side, so to say. Uh, the two baddies cook up some scheme to rid Causeway Bay of the Hong Hings via drugs, Holland, and some other pesky details. So we're going to move into the short opinions. So let me throw over to Paul to uh, share his short opinion of Young and Dangerous Free. So uh, what's your thought, Paul? Well, I mean, if you've kept up with the series to this point, it it's kind of been a bit of a downhill ride since the first one. I mean, we talked about the problems in terms of the production and the editing and the pacing of two. And here, you know, narratively, it's a bit more solidly structured, but it still has um, some issues. Where it really kind of knocks me in the head is with the character of Smarty, which I don't know if we want to talk too much about for fear of spoilers, but she has an arc that just kind of seems pointless to me by by the end of everything. But I do think it, you know, it has some minor connective threads that carry over from part two that are nice, you know, so there is a good sense of continuity between the films it's not like they just picked up and forgot everything that came before oh yeah nose he was nose picking anthony one's character was picking his nose quick anthony shove your finger <laughs> up your nose continuity yeah <laughs> um but you know overall i think that it's it's really starting to get very repetitive by this point because you know there's a betrayal and there's you know somebody's on the run again and you know um, then they've got to uncover the plot again, and it's just like, yeah, okay, we've kind of been there, done that. Somehow this is all less exciting. They've completely gotten away from, you know, some of the transitional screens where they actually use comic pages um, that they used to good effect in the first film. Well, they feature something way more stupid in this one. They feature uh, chap- chapter headings, uh, f- philosophical chapter headings. They love intertitles, and I don't know if this was director Lau's choice, but it's like the, the, these narrative intertitles come up between segments and just, you know, they're very introspective, and it's like, really? Okay. Um, yeah, they, they all explain things. Uh, we'll certainly get to that. Um, it will, uh, we, we, we differ a little bit in opinions, um, because I thought this was probably the most solid entry so far. Uh, gr- granted, I don't expect much from Andrew Lau, so anything you know, peaking ever so slightly. It's like, ooh, he actually knows a thing or two. Uh, he's gaining comfort developing the characters' and violence and tragedy a little bit more, and the cal- gallery of actors uh, in and around the young ones, they're very fun to have around. I think Anthony Wong is... Uh, is It's great that he's back reprising his role as uh, Taifei, and even though he's less in this movie and, and his loyalties, we know where his loyalties uh, lie in this one. Uh, I, I do like that it features uh, tangents that have nothing to do with triad conflict, that the characters hang out more. We we see their lives a little bit more and they, they connect with other characters and it's not necessarily this this straight line, line to the triad conflict. And uh, I, I enjoy that because we get some good actor interactions. He's not hitting it out of the park or anything. I mean, it, it's standard cookie cutter triad conflict stuff. It's fairly well done for uh, fairly well done for Andrew Lau, but it's not really any, anything special. But his efforts in one and two were spotty, 
it too was better because it had some fairly intriguing character development uh, but um in, all in all i think the third part surprises ever so slightly you, you you'd think the quality would fade so i'm almost tempted to say like do they get better with young and dangerous four through six but maybe that's my point where i would sit up and notice that the pattern is the same and stale but I did enjoy this because it felt um, it, I, I enjoyed watching some of these um, characters, and uh, we we kind of gone through at least that uh, I've forgotten about or I've been started to become immune by the fact that uh, the, this was anyway this glamorized look at the triad lifestyle and these young attractive actors were part of it and. Uh, that, that that was a problem in one and i don't feel that as much anymore but maybe it's not as much here or maybe i've just become immune and desensitized myself to it uh, but uh, it, it has developed paul into something of uh, i like watching some of these actors act with each other i'm beginning to like maybe not the entire core group because i still can't figure out jerry lamb but um combining the veterans with jordan chan at the very least uh, that becomes a little bit more enjoyable so can, can you spot that it's that that it's doing the same as one in terms of making this lifestyle appealing or do you think they've reduced that a little bit and focused on just telling stories that uh, are common in triad movies without making it look appealing. Do you have a take on that personally? It's hard for me, not being a part of that culture, to to really say how attractive it is in comparison with the first one. I still think they were trying to cool things up. I mean, you bring in Roy Chung, who's all buffed and toned and tanned, and he's got the, at least for the era, the the contemporary haircut. And they're, he's actually flashing that. There's a little back and forth between him and... Tai Fei about you know who's got the better hairstyle and who's who's got the better the better style right and so I do think that there's still a bit of that going on uh, unfortunately you know as a character himself he's just another character who's trying to out crazy ugly Quan and I don't think he comes off quite as interesting or, or quite as successful and it's again more to the fact one of these characters who does things that just begs the question is why would anybody follow this guy because he treats everybody around him so terribly. Um, it just, he doesn't feel like a character who would inspire loyalty, like unlike some of the, the other characters we meet, you know, in the organization. He is such a um, loose cannon and a prick to everyone he meets. And even in that opening ceremony where, he, where he's with Michael Chan, who's in this series, finally, the most tropey of tropey triad actors, Michael Chan, why mom? He's finally mm. in a young and dangerous movie. It's like, where were you all this time? <laughs> uh, busy, probably. But even in that ceremony that um, is at the beginning of the movie, he's just standing next to his uh, boss and just bopping his head and like he's enjoying something else. He's completely disrespectful. So you're right. Uh, he it's um, it's a big question mark why anyone would swear loyalty to this guy. Granted, I mean it's not. Um, elite Roy Chung stuff I mean that happens in Ringo's movies where you see Roy Chung having both fun but being detestable yeah you know school on fire uh, prison on fire and uh, that's the Roy Chung I like and he's he's having enough fun I, I suppose um, but he can't out ugly Kwan ugly Kwan I suppose uh, and he, he, he is uh, you know the, the, this rock and roll villain that at least 
makes the screen spark a little bit. Uh, but uh, it's very evident, though, that they want to find another vi- villainous uh, act and another villainous character to compare to one. And that is where the transparency comes in in terms of how they create these things. And also you ask yourself, is it really necessary to put out the movie this fast? Because then you're just going to rehash ideas and... Um, you know where where can you can, can you even take this into a fresh territory if all you're doing is uh, cracking up movies every three or four months uh, and maybe that's why the fourth one didn't come out until 1997 but do you remember if fourth even tried something new or that would that was still tried stuff that you recognize from one through three uh, it's been such a, a while since i've seen it i just know that they try to replace a certain character from three that's no longer with us um, that I don't think was uh, quite as successful. And then I think that's when we get the introduction of Sister 13, who, again, becomes one of the better spinoff characters of this series. Yeah, the spinoffs. I think we're going to do the spinoffs eventually because uh, Portland Street Blues was my first taste of the Young and Dangerous universe, and that would be the Sister 13 spinoff movie. That movie won won awards, man. And uh, then a little shoehorned in Young and Dangerous uh, cameo appearance by the gang in uh, in the end. But it it was good, man. And uh, now now with the third movie out uh, so fast, uh, I mean, the only thing they they are trying that's new is uh, pretty laughable. And it is the intertitles, I suppose you should call them. And all I kept thinking was, believe it or not, I thought of uh, how Lego Batman opens. All important movies opens on black, and important quotations, and that's what happens in Lego Batman. That this is what happens here, where they uh, talk about you gotta follow a good boss and not a bad boss. And okay, that's philosophical enough. But after a while, they just stop the movie to explain this just happened. <laughs> and I, come on, what is this? Even for you, Andrew Lau, this is the most lacking in confidence type of over-explanatory bullcrap and I can't figure out where maybe they thought to themselves yes, every important movie starts on black maybe that's the Manfred Wong Andrew Lau sort of combo thinking and we gotta get this movie out but it just falls flat and it just is odd the way they uh, I, I, I thought it was gonna open with one such thing because it's a quote at the beginning of the movie but no, they keep doing it as they, they even they, they, they think this is important enough to divide into chapters or something but I thought it was pretty stupid even for because they're, they're merely making a tried movie here they're not um, making something important you know yeah and it, I mean if it had been done more in sort of a comic book panel style with that I could have maybe thought it fit a bit more but here it's just again it's just standard font on a black screen so you know, it's it's head scratching. What, uh, what do you think of the uh, the carryover of development? If you will look at Chicken, for instance, because they refer back to his time in Taiwan and how he's uh, since then also evolved in uh, in the branch and uh, that he's become a leader. But now he wants to come back to Hong Kong and kind of restart uh, with the Hongqing boys. Um, what do you think of that thread? Because it, that's not tropey necessarily. That that's literally Andrew Lau and Manfred Wong, the writer, continuing to. To uh, continuing the thread from two, which means that you might have to watch two to understand fully what they're talking about. Yeah, this uh, this is part of the stuff that I like. I like when films um, have a good sense of continuity. I don't know if these storylines 
and characters are being pulled directly from the Teddy Boy comics or if there's any kind of creative license being used. Um, it could be a direct adaptation as far as I know because I've not read them. But I, I really like those moments. You know, he ends up coming back. He has to request from, you know, Simon Yam to get permission to come back because he was actually part of another gang. And then he's like, yeah, sure, but you got to start at the bottom. And then he ends up under Banana Skin, who is the reincarnation of one of the original Hong Hing boys. Um, so there is a bit of humor in, in that sort of hierarchy. They could have perhaps played that up even more than they did, I think. Yeah, I wanted more of that because uh, the, the, that was literally very funny that they, they picked one. Well, he's the guy you have to follow. And Chicken is not like, no, nah, I'm too good for that. He's more like, well, I got to um, greet someone as boss. And that's who I'm going to greet as boss. But they don't um, they don't have extensive scenes of them two interacting and him, you know, respecting uh, this younger man. Um, I can't remember more than one or two scenes, I suppose, where they where they were in the same uh, in the same scene. So they they abandoned that angle pretty quickly, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, it does come into play a little bit towards the end because you get uh, uh, Chicken's cousin from Taiwan uh, who comes back as a cameo. Um, so you know, I like that. I like that whole reference back to the second film and as you mentioned they are carrying over the continuation of smarty's issues as a result of the second film and then they they have some fun you know playing along that plot line but then what they end up ending with just kind of unravels the whole thing for me and, and just made me angry yeah it's um i won't spoil it but by having this uh, plot of uh, trying to rem- because she suffers from memory loss she has to start kind of from scratch having them recap scenes and events she was in made me realize that that's a script solution to make things go faster by repeating something we did in the first movie placing it here for a few minutes and then we don't have to come up with something new because they're they're literally trying to restage things from her life uh, and and it's drama about uh it's not terminal disease drama or anything but it's, it's kind of drama that andrew Lau doesn't really succeed at and at times maybe the chemistry sparked between her and ekin in the first one especially if uh when they were definitely not uh all lovey-dovey at the beginning of it all she had an attitude but now it the warmth that andrew Lau wanted to convey and have them fall fall in love again that was completely like not present for for me at the movie he is not he's not the director to deal with these kind of uh, dramatic beats as such and i don't think he's trying that very that hard he just uh does it a little bit and then pulls the rug out from underneath us in a very unconvincing fashion towards the end like the emotional attachment to them i thought was lesser than the first two, if it even was there in the first two. And uh, that includes Eakin. I think Eakin is he's not front and center very much. And even when he is front and center, he's still that sort of sort of dull Chan Ho Nam character. They're not doing anything with him anymore. And I, part of me wonders if that's just this era of Eakin, um, or if it's the way he was directed or the way he was written. Because again, we've talked about it on your other series. If you look at him here versus a film like Goodbye, Mr. Cool, it's like night and day, Egan. It really is in sure terms is. of the the kind of performance he can give. Comparatively, we've got Karen Mock in this film who's chewing up the scenery in a great manner 
and and but it's like it's like if you look at her here and her in Goodbye Mr. Cool, I want to say it's almost like the same Karen Mock. She brings a level and an intensity and an energy to her roles that's pretty continuous throughout a lot of her acting career. Whereas what we see with Eakin is in these early films, he's a lot more kind of just there, kind of like projecting an image, not necessarily emoting or acting quite as much, but later he gets just so much better. You know, I was hoping, and maybe this will come through in 4 through 6 or whatever, that when these characters, and I guess they will, take a, if they increase their age with 10 years or something and they become like the Simon Yam equivalent, and maybe they don't do this in 4 through 6, but I was hoping if they'd done that, then that would be the time for Eakin to get some material and respond and, and act the authoritarian that's been around. But there's not much difference between um, the first and third movie. He, yes, he is, uh, you know, the boss of Cosway Bay still after the big yay at the end of one. And that's where I think we've, le- we lef- we've left him. And he's not, um, he can't rely on and like uh, automatically bring the charm because I think Eakin responds when there is a little bit more material. Goodbye, Mr. Cool is a good example where I think he is charming. His uh, smile is infectious. Uh, he he wants to diffuse situations as he tries to leave the trial life behind. But here it's just, well, we got to paint the tattoo on him and dress him up in some cool wear and, uh, and the hair is good and um, box office, right? And I don't, it, it's not enough effort there. And, uh, you know, if you would have asked me, is that guy a star? <laughs> no. Based on this, no. He's, he's anonymous, really. But uh, obviously he can got to develop, thankfully. And um, uh, even though he was box office gold for four movies, I'm sure. But um, it took a while for 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 the, the actor, to, actor to emerge. And heck, I mean, I've even enjoyed him in romantic comedies. Because by that point, as he grew older... He could bring that comfort and charm, and uh, and uh, we could witness that development. Uh, but uh, here he's got his tat, he's got his wardrobe, his girl, he hangs, and he leads a little bit, and um, leads his boys a little bit, and uh, that was it. So it's, it's it's not very young and dangerous. It's just uh, very young and uh, dull and tropey at, at points. But I think why I think it works for me is the surrounding cast and the interactions that, as I said, for half a movie... They don't kickstart the Roy Chung sort of power play to gain to gain power in the trial world. For half a movie, they keep that off the radar a little bit. And we get enjoyable interactions around all of that, especially with Jordan Chan and Karen Mock, which is this... Um, you, you didn't see this interaction coming and this storyline coming that, yes, she's feisty, but her father is the Spencer Lamb character. And she actually goes to his church and she's the good girl. But uh, when she's not, then she takes off her wig, maybe straps on her rollerblades. And uh, it's the feisty girl that swears a lot in um, in English, in the UK English. And uh, I enjoy that the more we got to see Jordan and Karen interact, because we, we have to sync sound still here. See, seeing them grow attached to each other in a mildly un- uh, unconventional way it carried me through the movie because I didn't expect... Uh, the enjoyment of uh, actors in this movie universe sort of getting on like the, this back and forth was very enjoyable for me and Jordan has always been the standout anyway so to, so to see him uh, sink and gel with uh, with the fellow actors is uh, uh, was very enjoyable for me I can't remember if they how far they took 
their storyline or if they're gonna reserve that for four i don't know but um, it was enjoyable while it lasted uh, for sure yeah i think for me the mvps of the film are probably anthony wong and uh karen mock and they could have done with more screen time for both of them mm-hmm. um for 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 my money but in terms of money I think the, probably the big divergence for this film is in the second film, they go off to Taiwan for a good portion. And in this film, they decide to go to Holland. Because why? Because it's the gangster's paradise for some reason. I don't know why. But uh, it's, always the man, it's always the man from Holland that comes back into the fray. Uh, you know, um, in Return to a Better Tomorrow, it's a nice saying who's been the man from Holland and then comes back to wreak havoc in Hong Kong and so forth. So speaking of another Ikin movie. You know, is it just like cute production value? Is it fun to see Hong Kong movies uh, take their act on the road in this case? I think it's fine. And I think it shows, you know, a, a broadening of scope, which is good for a series like this. But for me, the problem was that narratively, it just was like, no, why would anybody do that? Why this this guy, Crow, is your, you know, is is has proven at every encounter to be a jerk and to be somebody you shouldn't trust and you're going to go with your boss to this foreign place and you're going to trust this guy and let him lead you around and make introductions and follow you. That for me just kind of, you know, the floor kind of bottomed out. I'm like, the, the minute you see him, when you get on, get off the plane in Holland, you know, your your spider sense should be tingling or something. <laughs> come on, guys. Come on. Like Ekin's tattoo should light up or something. Yeah. Something's going on. Uh, yeah, I mean, he he seems so reckless, Crow. I mean, I, I enjoy Roy to a degree here. I have to say first because he's uh, he is ready to play, but the filmmakers are giving him this um, impossible task, really, to uh, live up to Francism's uh, carousel of uh, mm-hmm. bad guyness. Uh, but Roy, Roy is a great actor, and he brings forth that energy. He is this sort of he loves shooting people in public, and everything is. I think fantastic and rock and roll, but uh, and he's got abs too. You know, is uh, that shirt is not on very much in this movie because uh, <laughs> Roy is uh, Roy's pristine, let's just say. And but 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 really, you know, when you break it down, as you correctly say, there, there's both nothing new, but there's not much logic there either. Uh, Ugly Quan was not this smart villain necessarily, but I guess we had our first sort of serving of a young and dangerous style villain. So that was sort of fine. But I guess your, your problem is that it's it's part re- repeating itself and it's not trying to do something new or even slightly clever with um, with a sort of out there villain like that. For me, at least Ugly Kwan was fresh, you know, in the first one because you're being introduced to this world. But by this point in the series, you would think people would be a lot more averse to this kind of personality, you know, and as an as an as an audience member you know um, that's that's what i'm saying you know so they even mention him by name at one point uh, in one of the intertitles i think they reference back to ugly kwan uh, when talking about crow in one of those over explanatory type of intertitles so uh, a little um I, I i have to fairly agree on anthony wong he, he would come out to play regardless because uh, at this point him he might have been sick at this point. He had some some sort of illness that made him puff up, actually, because he took steroid treatment and he, he wanted um, and needed money. So between 96 and 99, circa, you saw Anthony so much, but you also saw his body change a little bit. But regardless if he if he had his diagnosis or not, he he's ready to play and uh, he's fine with this being... Uh, I mean, it's the actor from Ebola syndrome, people. So obviously he is fine with being this uh, unshaved, 
character and with garish shirts uh, who look dirty and smelly and his hair hasn't been washed for five days but the great thing about Taifei and that makes me think that maybe the spin-off movie is cool he is a sort of representative of, of triad morals here he's not this uh, madman who just speaks randomly he actually is saying the right things at a particular critical point in the movie that we shouldn't act on irrational emotions we need to break this down what has happened here because someone has put uh, well crow has put something in motion that uh, makes people think that yeah, shanhonama has done something and anthony wong feels that no that can't be it and we really need to know properly what has happened and talk calmly about this and you wouldn't think that that wild character had that in him but that's the veteran presence and veteran and uh, and the writing for for the veteran that uh, really get, get, gets this movie places uh, for me. I mean, uh, heck, yeah, they um, they even um, have a little subplot about it, it's not much connected to Anthony, but about an actress that uh, is uh, kidnapped and is. Um, they film her presumably uh, doing uh, nude stuff against her will and things like that. And uh, it reminded me of the fact that something that might have happened earlier or later. Um, if you remember, wasn't Karina Lau kidnapped? And uh, yes. there was no ransom stuff and video or photos spread uh, by the kidnappers? Yes, indeed. And it reminded me a little bit of uh, that. Do, do you remember if Handy that was earlier or way later, as a matter of fact? Um, I think it might have been earlier. I think this might have been a uh yeah so she was what was she was doing days of being wild so that was uh early 90s right 1990 i think um was when that happened so which is not this you know if if this was wong jing it would have felt cheap but here it's you know it's not uh, as like this cheap sort of prod of the audience like hey you remember that sensational stuff but it it uh, because it's so many years later presumably so but uh I also like little sections here that I wish were expanded on. I mean, I would have I would have taken a young and dangerous movie that had no trial conflicts whatsoever, but had little little I don't know diaries of their lives because there are some great little scenes of uh, the Hong Hing boys not being able to gain uh, respect and they can't push back anymore because the young ones, the sort of new generation, they're a bit scared, Paul. <laughs> they yeah. don't back down they can't walk onto the football field and say we're the hung hing boys and people will go oh sorry 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 nope that's not happening anymore and i'm i'm sure you m- might have some notes on that that might describe the scene but I, I, I love the cap to it when they walk away you know the hung hing boys uh, jordan chan and uh, and michael say and they walk away and they essentially say to each other like are they looking for us are they looking back we should go and they're a bit rattled and it's both amusing and funny but it it's a thread that i liked it's a de- they develop something here that the tri world is moving faster than than these hung hing boys that were that that were shit at this point they were the guys and they're not anymore and i thought that was enjoyable writing and i wish i could have gotten a, a whole movie that's that's like like a little um side story to the main story like a young and dangerous free 2.5 or 3.5 because andrew Lau is comfortable doing that stuff uh, these verbal confrontations where um, where they are not getting respect anymore so that, that was very funny and very enjoyable for me yeah and you get a chance to see a very young um 
Samuel Lang Lang Chuck Moon, mm-hmm. who is a recognizable face, um, even though you probably won't necessarily remember his name, but he's been in many, many films and lots of supporting roles over the years. And I think he's done some music for some films as well. A lot of uh, category three movies. He was in yeah. 33 D Invader. He's the guy who turns into a big cactus and has some sexy time with his new cactus cactus penis. Yes, I said that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think there too, part of the idea is that there's always a new generation. I think that's what they're trying to go for is that, you know, even the, the hung the hung hing boys who were at one time they were the kids on uh, on the basketball court you know and that there's a generation ready to come up and take their place now that they've kind of moved up you know further in the world and they're meaner too <laughs> <laughs> it, it it's triatropy stuff that that it shows that they're willing to develop it a little bit more whether manfred or andrew were even smart enough to take it further i don't know but it was really appreciated um this uh so sort of, uh, this pushback and it's uh it, it doesn't lead to a lot of like bloodshed as such it's just that they're they're a bit rattled emotionally like we gotta go now guys <laughs> to uh to uh, places where we're liked and uh, where people are not so mean anymore there were a couple other points that kind of stuck out in my mind too there's a there's a sequence where roy chung's character crow is uh chasing after some characters and then the priest um Spencer Spencer uh, Lamb. Spencer Lamb. Yeah, Spencer Lamb. Uh, his character comes out and he rallies like the whole neighborhood, you know. And it's another one of these scenes with just like a massive amount of extras coming and holding sticks and shouting and sho- shoving things in the air. But you know, because I've seen this film a few times before, I'm paying attention rather than to the main actors, but I'm looking at like the extras yep. and the people in the background and stuff. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, there's some people, there's like there's some construction workers there. There's like, uh, you know, they're just there for the lunchbox and that's about <laughs> it. So, um, so there's stuff like that, you know, that's kind of fun. If you're familiar with the, the genre of what they're doing here to, to pay attention to, there was also an interesting character, and I can't remember uh, the character's name, but he was a police inspector who, in the scope of Hong Kong cinema, was perhaps one of the smartest police inspectors I've ever encountered. You mean the guy that uh, Jordan Chan uh, meets and has a discussion yes. with? Uh, that's uh, Yun Bun. Yun Bun, yes. Okay, so, because he brings him in, he's like, you know, and Jordan Chan's like saying, oh, I'm innocent, I didn't do this, you know, and he's like, yeah, we know, you know, but we, you know, got to bring you in and, and we've been following Crow for some time and this is what we think happened. And, and it's like, finally, somebody has some smarts in this movie, you know, and I like, I wanted to see more of his character too. And he shows up a little bit at the end and, and, you know, he's kind of got a fun little role. Yeah, this um, sporadic writing that comes up uh, really elevates uh, the universe um, in a way where I think to myself, maybe it's just ignorance that, they're getting smarter, so Young and Dangerous Four must be great, right? But I don't know, um, you know, I don't know yet because I haven't seen it. If uh, Andrew Lau and Manfred Wong have this spark in them to to enhance this universe, or if Four through Six is um, more of the same, same old stuff, despite uh, being released later and some of the actors growing older and things like that. Uh, do Do you even remember if by the point the prequel came out that they sort of amassed their creativity and their experience having worked in this universe and made something fresh or even the prequel felt like well that was expected yeah i mean for me after this point there's there's not been a lot that's made me want to revisit things with the exception of portland street blues 
Um, I am partial to, I like the spinoff for Legendary Taifei, although it's it's uh, very low budget. It's, it's this $5 movie that really yeah. needs a good acting performance for, to work, I, I, I sense. like, a, but, but, but maybe Anthony's good in it, as a matter of fact. Yeah, I, I watch it for Anthony. A lot of people, I think, critically are are down on it and that's fine um but uh, of the series those have been kind of two of the higher points for me the prequel when they recast and they bring in the young kids like you know at the time nick say and and others i watched it it didn't really do a lot for me because firstly prequels they they kind of get under my skin because they end up going back and telling a story with usually a bigger budget and you know better production values than the story that came before and that sometimes tends to irritate me a little bit, but also because it's a new cast and because there's some, you know, some retconning of ideas that might have been put in with something in the in the original film, I tend to like them less. But that's just me. That's just a, you know, personal pet peeve of mine. If you remember back to Young and Dangerous one, uh, Andrew Lau was, was doing his best Christopher Doyle when shooting the triad stuff, you know, the, the, uh, the triad uh, violence uh, with the blurry camera work. That's now ditched, and finally, you feel a little bit of the uh, slicing and dicing being dangerous and impactful. Not as much as, as in Goodbye, Mr. Cool, which really was exceptional in that regard. But finally, you see it. Uh, Andrew Lau has ditched his stylish flourishes. There's not a lot of them here. He's comfortable shooting dialogue scenes, just shoot, shoot the damn things. And uh, the action scenes as well. You know, he's uh, present. He doesn't um, nor his action team ruin it with blurry stuff. And you even see Karen Mock uh, doing a stunt here and slicing and dicing. So that's uh, pretty cool. She jumps onto a van. And we shouldn't say that that's an easy stunt necessarily. And and, and it's also better, <laughs> miles better than the a Better Tomorrow rip-off stuff. And the finale kill in Young and Dangerous 2 both of which were so pathetic so it's nice to see young and dangerous free has something to offer up but i i to round off my notes i i like that the first half is more experimental i like the new um the new characters and even though the, the second half is tropey there, there's enough energy here but there's really no effective crescendo in terms of building hatred towards crow and what characters they kill off and what they what characters they don't kill off that the emotional sort of crescendo that happens with the characters they pick for um, for exit out of the series is uh, pretty zero on the scale of emotional attachment. is It's just um, way calculated, and uh, and it involves you know main actors that haven't done that well and haven't been given that much. And then when you just queue up a canto ballad to emphasize the moment, then you're not really believing in it as such, Paul. And I think uh, if Young and Dangerous wanted to truly mean something going into four, then that moment towards the end needed to be way better. And uh, that Andrew Lau can't do very well. So I'm going to end it there. Uh, obviously, we're not going to spoil it, so uh, you're, you're free to either not say anything else or um, free to share any any other notes on, on, on the movie itself. No, I mean, I think that in terms of its narrative construction... As I said, the the way it's put together, it's a bit more solid in terms of storytelling than the second film, which had lots of problems that we discussed before. It's a, it's a bit more compact in terms of what it's presenting. And even though there are some threads that carry through, you don't necessarily have to watch the second film, um, though I don't see how you'd get by without having seen the first film. 
so I wouldn't say necessarily you could watch this by itself. But it's still, it's not as good as the first film in terms of just the introduction to the world because it gets a bit repetitive and because we see some things that have been done before but may have been done better previously, so... And in a way, I think this is the most watchable so far, to be honest. But uh, they're, they're not great or anything. Yeah, I, I still lean towards the spin-offs and their creativity, whether comedic or dramatic uh, creativity. And uh, I'm looking forward to explore them a little bit more. I mean, I, mean heck, I can turn on Once Upon a Time in Tried Society now and then watch it two more times after that. Because it's just a fantastic sort of oddball prequel, but not prequel. And alternate, uh, alternate universe uh, type of thing, so... Did you did you ever watch that? I, I know I sent you the Laserdisc ripoff Once Upon a Time and Tried Society. Yes, yeah. Do you remember enjoying it or it was a head scratcher? Yeah, you know, Francis always delivers for the most part. It's 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 interesting to see offshoots like that. And again, some of the stuff that comes out of this, whether it's directly connected or, you know, kind of like a Marvel alternate universe thing, you know, even though they're trying to buy for cash, you know, it's a cash grab in, in some way, shape or form that, you know, these things could kind of get made. I mean, you wouldn't have expected them to do a spinoff film about the Francism character uh, any more than you would have expected them to do a spinoff film about, you know, Taifei or uh, Sister 13. But there they are. And some of them end up being better material than the source material. And even Chicken has one. Uh, I believe, um, which I, I remember Ross's review on Love HK film, that spin-off movie. I think it's Those Were the Days, one of those many Those Were the Days. That that spin-off actually um, messes up uh, events that take place in Young and Dangerous, where a character that dies in Young and Dangerous does not die in the spin-off movie. So mm. you wonder, like, are they even connected? Is it an alternate thing? But but I remember him g- giving it a good review. So it's one of one of those spin-off movies that may, might be worth uh, looking at. At any rate, uh, we're going to conclude this one, and we'll see if we, we'll move into four or not. I, I said when we did Young and Dangerous one, not doing anyone any more movies. I'm tired of it. And then after a while, well, let's try the second one. <laughs> and then after a while, ah, we might as well do it for the third one. So I'm probably going to reach that moment too. Ah, so, ah, might as well do a prequel as well. <laughs> And then we have a catalogue of Young and Dangerous uh, coverage complete after a while. <laughs> At any rate, uh, as for availability, Young and Dangerous 3 was a universe title in Hong Kong that's now out of stock and uh, probably out of print. I'm not sure it reused a cinema print with burned-in subtitles or not, but the specs sort of suggests that it was. So it's one of those cheaper universe DVDs. They usually did optional subtitles and, uh, and uh, uh, a print that's uh, not struck from cinema prints. But I, as for getting the whole trilogy, um, I recommend uh, grabbing the UK DVD box set. It's still out there. It has the first three movies. The quality varies throughout the discs. I mean, one and two, they're sort of VHS quality. The third movie has the best transfer. It l- looks more DVD quality, but um, but, but they all have um, permanent subtitles, all of them. But uh, the best thing is that they're, they're all newly translated subtitles, so they don't reuse any cinema prints from Hong Kong. And uh, this is uh, cheap on the Amazon Marketplace, so you can still get it. I recommend doing it. Stuart, our uh, beloved uh, Stuart, the creator of uh, the Podcast on Fire uh, network, he uh, gifted me this uh, trilogy box set. So I'm uh, very grateful for that. I didn't keep the case because you know what happens to my cases, uh, Paul. They go away. (laughs) But I have the discs and I can find them in 30 seconds. Uh, I also want to mention again, there is an eBay listing for a box set uh, released in Malaysia, I think, by Speedy that claims all six 
films, Young and Dangerous 1 through 6, have optional subtitles. And at the speed is a legit company. But I don't know if that set is official or not. Maybe bootleggers slapped Speedy on the front of them. But it says it has optional subtitles for all the, the movies, which means that they're different from the Hong Kong counterparts. Because uh, Maya did uh, Young and Dangerous 1 and 2, and I believe those have had the old cinema subtitles. So who knows? I, I might pick it up one day. It's not very expensive. And also, as I always say, there's also a listing on eBay. still is there, or, or it gets reposted, because they have, they have them. There's a 12 DVD plus CD collection featuring uh, the main movies and some spin-offs that you can get cheaply. But obviously, this is not an official collection either, because the rights to Young and Dangerous were with different companies such as uh, Universe and Maya and White Sight and so forth but uh, you get uh, you get the movies and you get something to sing along with at the same time you know the Young and Dangerous theme uh, must be on one of them uh, one of them CDs so um, and uh, maybe karaoke video so you can sing along uh, to the uh, Young and Dangerous theme with your friends but uh, we'll see I might pick that up just to pick it up just to see what the heck this is about and what kind of quality it is but it doesn't hold the cool spin-offs like once upon a time in tried society because that would mean the bootleggers had to get like laser discs and uh, do dvdr versions of laser discs so that's why it's not there but uh, paul's favorite movie taifei legendary taifei that was in there that was in the collection so you can uh, we can get it for that i suppose have you uh, unearthed your uh, your spin-offs and your Type A DVDs now that you've organized your collection? Uh, now that you've pu- pulled it out of storage? Like, here it is, the Holy Grail, Legendary Type A. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I only have the VCD version of Legendary Type A. So DVDs and Blu-rays have been organized completely. The VCDs, not yet. I, I, I can just imagine that that's this $5 movie with uh, Anthony running around on the streets in Hong Kong. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. No, why not? <laughs> why it. not? <laughs> They're not going to bust them for not having a permit there because that's what Hong Kong movies did. They just went out there, shot a movie for a couple of days, and spin off, spin off already. At any rate, uh, we're going to move on from this universe and into the wacky, uh, wacky universe of the Yun clan, Yu Ping and his brothers making um, supernatural comedic shenanigans in the form of the Miracle Fighters from 1982. The the traditional martial artists. Um, do something drink something smoke something and then made movies for our benefits so uh, we'll uh, we'll see what uh, that is all about uh, after the break hey everyone you are listening to the podcast on fire network my name is bird and i'm matt we are the kaiju transmissions podcast so if you like giant monsters godzilla gamera ultraman uh king kong you like japanese sci-fi we are the place to be and you can check us out online in several places. Isn't that right, Matt? Yeah, check us out on Twitter. Uh, our handle is KT underscore podcast. Or visit us on Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions Podcast. And you can also email us at Kaiju Transmissions Podcast at gmail.com. So if you like your monsters gigantic, angry, and rubbery, check us out. And welcome back in the second movie of this episode that we're going to review and discuss is uh, The Miracle Fighters by Yung Wo Ping and it's from 1982 and the plot from Hong Kong Movie Database goes as follows. Uh, the plot is basically about a general played by Eddie Ko who is double-crossed and takes the young prince as hostage with some tragic results in the wake of it. Years later he has trained an orphan played by Yun 
uh, Yacho in martial arts, but uh, the old man is a miserable drunk. When an evil sorcerer, played by Yun Shun Yi, kidnaps the orphan and tries to pass him off as the prince, the orphan takes refuge with two quarreling sorcerers, played by Yun Chung Yan, the brother of uh, Yun Mo Ping, and uh, Lang Gaiyan, aka Beri, who teach him uh, some of their magic so he can da- so that he can face off against the evil sorcerer in a competition. I don't have any background notes as such, other than you know mild observations on on my behalf because. Something happened, Paul, to how Yun Woping and his brother saw movies. Uh, after having done traditional martial arts movies and having broken the kung fu comedy genre with Snake and Eagle Shadow and Drunken Master, you had Magnificent Butcher. Something happened in around the time the Buddhist Fist came out and Dreadnought came out because the Buddhist Fist features, you know, a fighter that looks like an undead. Well, an undead. He's stiff. Dreadnoughts switches moods into almost a serial killer slasher plot and it's rather delightful so the movies got way more rich on many genre elements in one and the creativity was kind of off the wall wild like it came from almost drunken spitballing because i don't know about you but this sure as heck doesn't reek of (laughs) of classically trained martial artists thinking about seriously how about uh, forwarding tradition it feels more like well we want to make weird fun shit together and let's erase any uh, limits and boundaries and just go to town i mean they okay they made legend of a fighter which is uh, all in all quite a serious movie but you had you know the miracle fighters and shaolin drunk god and Taoism drunk god and drunken tai chi and breakdancing comedy mismatched couples so it, it it was it was loneliness but to me and this gives away sort of my short opinion, I suppose. But to me, it was expert looniness, this streak of movies. Uh, it was so delightful to see them take off uh, and, you know, you know, they're crazy ideas, but they made them happen kind of thing. So I don't know how familiar you are with this streak of movies, you know, Dreadnought and the Drunk God movies and going up to a uh, mismatched couple. So, uh, you know, regardless of how many movies you watch in that streak, uh, what is your take on this? Is this uh, is this um, looniness that... Uh, that gets acceptance from you, if you will. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think this is a case of a a family who had, uh, you know, banded together to do kung fu films and, you know, were an expert at their craft. They knew films. They knew the, the way films were done prior, you know, in generations prior. And for anybody who's studied martial arts, you know, it's a lot of repetition, 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 you know, to build muscle memory and, and all that stuff. And when you're not doing that or when you get to a certain point to where you're so good at doing that, you're able to then, you know, in in your off moments when you're not performing or practicing or taking your next martial arts exam, you can play, right? And you you're you you start to take the repetition, the the precise movements of form and you start to think more differently about them. And I think that's very much the time period that this clan, the Yun clan, kind of entered into. They got to this point to where they had been successful enough um, to where they could start to play and they could start to let the creativity take over the tradition. And what you get is not always something that makes a lot of narrative sense, but in terms of the physicality is just phenomenal and so creative and so fun. Um, And I think that is a highlight in this film and other films that you've mentioned, things like, you know, mismatched couples and others where they're just 
taking the tradition and they're saying, let's bend it, let's play with it, let's see how far we can take it. And what you get is some of the most creative physicality that you will see in these kinds of films. And yeah, I mean, there's still films that come later that have creative physicality, but you know, especially when you compare it of the films today, where everything is a green screen, it, it's an exercise in green screen composition, basically. And what you lose is you lose that sense of what can we do with our bodies? What can we do to be physically creative on the screen to generate an effect in an audience to go wah or laugh or simply, you know, have your jaw drop? And as for my brief opinion of uh, the Miracle Fighters, I, I found a gif today of uh, one of the zany gremlins from Gremlins 2, uh, rolling his eyes crazily and laughing like a child. And that's how I feel about this movie. Uh, I uh, marvel at the creativity and I ask myself, how do these films get made? I don't care if I ever get the answer because it's on there on the screen. This is just pure creative joy with sights that you, you, you couldn't have predicted beforehand. And, while it is choreography-oriented, it has swordplay and so forth, be aware that the folks who brought you Kung Fu comedy isn't that interested in Kung Fu for this one, because it's the Sorcerer's Championship that is the thing. And that should tell you a thing or two about the priorities in this movie and how they technically are going to go about their business. It might not say anything, what I just said to you, because these are sites that you, you, you just can't have uh, calculated this beforehand oh they're totally going to do that thing and it's going to look that way because the ideas are so vibrant and vivid that this is still fresh to me so um even though you talked about the movies in general uh, do you want to say something uh, in short first of all uh, connected specifically to the miracle fighters in terms of uh, if you like it or not Oh, I love it. It's um, it's a great film. The only downside for this film is that there isn't really a good restoration of it, as far as I know. I mean, when I look at the archive of Hong Kong films that should get a restoration, that sh that would you know should get the time and money invested into it to be put on a you know Blu-ray or something, th this is among those titles just because it's so different and it's and it's so creative in in what it's portraying on the screen. I mean, maybe their intention wasn't to be visually gorgeous. There's no sweeping vistas, you know, there's no like Shaw scope, colorful moments necessarily. But I think that the, the creativity in here deserves to be highlighted. It deserves that treatment. For sure. I mean, um, I have it in the availability section, but I guess the closest thing to a restoration we got during the disc era was uh, the French release because they normally cleaned up their prints um, from the Hong Kong uh, versus the Hong Kong counterparts. But in Hong Kong... Uh, I, I don't think uh, Fortune Star ever put out a remastered version of this. It was uh, recycling the um, the old transfer that um, that we watched. Uh, so um, you're, you're right; it deserves uh, to look a little bit better. But um, I'm fine with it as is. I mean, I'm, I'm prepared to go back to a laser disc if there ever was a widescreen laser disc because it would be cool in the case of this movie. But uh, I hear you completely because. Uh, the interest must be narrow, though, and very small. You can't announce, like, a Jung Ping box set. Oh, Drunken Master, Snake and Eagle Shadow, Magnificent Butcher. No, we're drunk god movies. Oh, okay. Well, five people even, will even, even Even the name of Donnie Yen isn't enough to get remastered, <laughs> mismatched couples. 
But uh, as I hinted at before, you, you so want to sort of stop and freeze frame and appreciate the frenzied creativity like this, um, like that, that's on display here because it just it goes beyond the verbal sparring and the pratfalls, uh, but rather it involves complex physical feats, as Paul talked of. It involves props and sets that have to be designed because these ideas don't you can't just put your brothers in front of the camera and shoot your damn ideas you need to involve uh, departments filmmaking departments you need to have patience as you craft these edit by edit and you need to put it all together in post-production so that it makes the screen look like this lightning rod that you you know that you had in your head and it needs to come off as energetic and fantastical and frenzied because um if you're idea man you you need to pursue pursue it to execution and certainly the brothers i think i think do uh, and uh, it's f- so far from their excellent traditional kung fu choreography you you wonder what uh, indeed snapped in the brothers and it um and, and, and as you spoke of so eloquently that uh, they must have always been thinking about you know we're part of cinema and what do we like? Where do we want to take it? And can we take it on our own? Those places. Are we going to be accepted by being faster, louder and dumber? <laughs> but our way, our creative way. And uh, I think they said to themselves, like, we- we're that good, I think. So uh, come on, brothers. You know, let's put on silly facial hair and false teeth. And uh, you, <laughs> Yunchen Yang, get in women's clothing. <laughs> you got a job to do. And that's what we get here in uh, The Miracle Fighters. And they uh, I might be looking at it way more deeply than, than I should, but I think it's rather inspiring what they do here because um, this is filmmaking, Paul. It's not, uh, you know, shoot your little silly young and dangerous movie for three weeks and shoot it out into, into the theaters. This this requires so much patience to get right. And, um, and it's all physical too. Uh, as I said to you in private, there's so precious little post-production effects in this one. This is in-camera work. And if that doesn't require patience uh, up there with, uh, you know, with the best of them, then I don't know. Uh, I don't know. But uh, to, to me, therefore, the byproduct uh, or a sort of good side effect of this is that the Miracle Fighters, maybe this is the old man talking, doesn't feel like an old film. It doesn't feel like um, primitive filmmaking. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. I, I think that if there's a, if there's a really a downside to this film is that it's got so much maleness in it <laughs> you know i mean as you mentioned even the the role of the old woman is played by one of the one of the brothers there's no real sense of a female presence at all among the cast which is a shame i mean i i you know i'm i'm sure that if it was redone today um this script was redone today that you know there there would be an actress or two out there who could come in and and take up you know one of the roles but you know beyond that i think that it oozes so much creativity that sometimes it seems like the plot is there in spite of itself just to get to the creativity. And we can talk a little bit about the plot. I remember the first time I saw it, the thing that really shocked me was that there's a character here who you're introduced to um, in at the start of the film, played by you know Eddie Coe. And I kind of thought this was going to be his story, and it's not really at all, um, you know, because of who he is and everything. And he's playing a he plays a general in the Qing dynasty, and plot is basically that he's married, uh, I guess, a Han Chinese woman, which is against the Manchurian law. I don't remember if it's the emperor or one of the 
uh, a higher official wants to have him executed. And he ends up kidnapping the prince and fleeing. And so that sort of sets um, the events rolling. Now, from there, it gets just really strange because there's Sorcerer Bat, who's kind of, you know, been tasked with hunting him down and trying to recover the prince. Only there's a problem. And then there, there's another character that gets involved. And, you know, it, it kind of goes from there. Does this ever get confusing, though? Because for me, that this was pretty well laid out because it is awfully simple to the point where the Yuns were really near that edge of you're just stringing together skits right now. They, they've managed to balance that uh, fine line, though. The, the only problem I really had with the narrative was the idea of Sorcerer Bat and what he wants to do. And then, you know, he ends up taking the, the Shugut or the Yunyacho character as the placeholder. And I'm just thinking, you know, because he's under the protection of the old man and the old woman, why does he really, he, he could go get anybody else to be the placeholder <laughs> at this point, right? I mean, it's it's just a lot of work and, you know, to, to sort of get to the end. But it doesn't matter because, you know, you just get so creative by the time you're there that you don't care anymore. Is it us that are a bit too experienced with Hong Kong movies and too desensitized where that we don't criticize the fact that it starts rather seriously and then transitions into the wackiness? Because the Eddie Coe story, you know, it looks like a more traditional martial arts or swordplay movie. We get some rather quality swordplay, of course in the beginning, and then eventually it switches into the quarreling sorcerers. Do you think it's us that's desensitized to that, where we don't criticize the fact that such a mood switcheroo just happened in a the movie? There is a very dark moment that happens early on that I think, if you've not seen this before, is kind of unexpected. And you're like, oh, they okay, they really went there. But then I think pretty quickly it, it moves, starts to move a bit beyond that, so... I think it's trying trying to set the tone, but then say, okay, we've gotten our seriousness out of the way. Now it's time for this, you know. And it's like the Monty Python, and now for something completely different. <laughs> exactly. But yet it doesn't uh, do because it's not a traditional kung fu comedy. It doesn't cut to the goofy, bullied hero or anything. It's so far removed from that, being that it has other content. But also, these makers were probably very aware that since 1978. There's been 5,000 of our movie, you know, a variation of our movie. So we're not going to go there because we know know better. And uh, we have some other ideas that we came up with during Midnight Snack uh, a few weeks back. So we're going to have the the ghost of the urn, I suppose, uh, pop out of it. And we're going to have that visual to start off things. And uh, there's your start of energetic direction and uh, clan feuds to a degree but it's not this Choyun directed Gulong novel come to life and the type of complexity dad has it really strips it down pretty pretty easily and uh, has a you know has the concept of the quarreling sorcerer and uh, their uh, disciple that they fight over and then they they, they sort of walk that uh, they, they, they use that thread and then take us to the sorcerers championship in between there are clear they have clearly conceptualized that we want this sequence here we want that sequence here we want a couple of assassination attempts creative ones but assassination attempts and some fun stuff in the middle and then we'll get to the sorcerer's championship and th- that is structure but it is it, it was never dangerously close to you're, you're just stringing stuff together and uh, 
claiming that you are filmmakers but you're just doing skits they weren't they weren't really really close to it but it's not a full piece or anything it they they want to provide you unique sites so they they got their frame story and then they can use that as the springboard and that that's perfectly perfectly fine to do because uh, it uh, it really becomes this live cartoon i i enjoy little moments like uh, for for instance when we meet the sorcerers or it's morning you know and uh they are sleeping and uh, Longayan's uh, character is uh, sleeping and obviously doing the, the snoring that and the cloth above him reacts to his exhale like in a cartoon <laughs> and uh, you know you can just imagine you know watching whatever you know uh, uh, Bugs Bunny cartoon or Daffy Duck or Donald Duck or whatever sleeping like that and uh, the environment reacting to that so and that's the, the feeling in the movie got me in a good mood because I, I trust Jumbo Ping to not uh, to know what he's doing and clearly they're being broad Paul they're going broad places but it never ever approached grating despite the mugging that's gonna go on the cross-dressing and the extensive mugging of Langayan's character because his character needs to look a certain way so that never approached grating and I think in many other filmmakers hands it would have been easily grating so for, mm. for me that worked beautifully due to casting due to everybody being on the same page kind of thing that's a miracle that you know mugging and loud and uh and uh you know pratfalls and slapstick doesn't get annoying in a hong kong movie and here they 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 never approach that level for me so uh was that ever a worry for you that oh my god here we go here we go here's the overacting and here's here's you know bringing dean check uh well they didn't have <laughs> you know like the fear of Dean Sheck entering this, which he never does. But uh, we have like worried watching this throughout throughout the, throughout the years that oh, this is going to be the annoying twenty thirty minutes of the movie. Yeah, I mean, if I'm being completely honest, the the first time that the old woman kind of comes on screen, I'm having flashbacks of a, of a of a Dean Sheck kind of character to be sure. But it never it never really descended into that because I, I, it kept things moving along in such an interesting way at least for my, you know, for my own taste. Um, and it, it does get referential in some places. I mean, you get the sense that these filmmakers know film, they know Hong Kong film, they know film from the outside. Um, and, and maybe you would know this with your film knowledge. There's, a, there's an assassination attempt in which a character is using poison down a string, which I have previously seen in a James Bond movie, um, You Only Live Twice, you know, back in 1967. I'm guessing that's been used elsewhere before as well. Um, and, and they're using that here, but they're they're reversing it because they're, again, making it comedic. Yeah, yeah I mean, it seems like a familiar sequence, but I, I, I couldn't even remember the James Bond, uh, uh, which James Bond movie that was in. But uh, it's uh, it's certainly not rampant in either Yung Wo-Ping's or other martial arts movies um, as such. Uh, I, I was delighted that I started to think to myself, the the opening scene of Lung Kayan when he snores they're gonna bring that back at some point and when I realized they were gonna bring that back in the case of this sequence <laughs> yeah excellent well done well done yeah it's a good setup a bit later there's there's a I almost think of it as a double reference there's a device that's used which is somehow referring back to the flying guillotine but it is also a reference to in some ways the 1979 film Phantasm 
And I again, I don't know if if the Yun clan sat down and ever watched Phantasm, but it does predate this film by a couple of years. And it's I'm just, you know, that's what popped into my mind when I see that sequence. So you also come to realize that if you look back at Yun Wapeng's uh, filmography from 78 and onwards, i.e. the Kung Fu comedies and onwards, that he, he has had a good grasp on broad characters since 1978. You know, say what you want about Dean Sheck, but... It's not his worst movies, uh, the Drunken Master, Snake and Eagle Shadow movies. Uh, and therefore, I was very confident in seeing uh, the double act of uh, Yun Chun Yan and uh, Lung Gaiyang. They keep on doing such uh, such memorable, clever visual touches. Uh, um, the sorcerers seem to delight in um, sort of messing with the Yun Yacho character as he enters uh, their temple and they sort of uh, squabble over who's going to teach him and what he's going to be taught and there's very clever visual touches like um, there's a a painting of a waterfall and there's actual actual water coming out of the painting magic i suppose and he passes what seems like painted candles on the wall but they actually light up and i'm sure that that's not complex but those are ideas paul and those are fun ideas to establish that that there's something magical going on here and uh, to have that youthful lead in the case of Yun Yat Cho react to all of this also confirmed to me that he uh, he's restrained to a degree. He Yun Bo Ping often directed him to be quite broad, but he's restrained to a degree here. He's uh, he's the youthful lead destined to learn, but they don't make a broad, you know, Jackie Chan esque like uh, character out of him, uh, which I appreciated because he, he's not always the the best out of your young performance if i'm being honest and, and you know these movies went to broad places if you look at mismatch couples obviously everyone everyone is a, a loon in that one so they they weren't afraid of it but they keep him restrained a little bit more and uh, he's uh, putting very fun sequences including you know uh, obviously uh, those uh, those visual t- touches i i talked of but uh, he's putting fun sequences including for fighting the uh, the ghost in the urn and uh, I don't know all the rules about what such a character trapped in an urn, what he or she can and can't do in terms of weaponry and the arsenal, but it contains sites that I've, I can't remember seeing a ton of times in Hong Kong movies. And the Yuns, they execute that. If you think of the fight scene with Yun Yacho and uh, Ghost in the Urn, that that seems childish and starts crying and then throws out the red thread and captures Yun Yacho that way. All that stuff just keeps on building and piling on top of each other and it keeps on being delightful. There's like no sequences where you think to yourself, oh, oh, they so were like woefully executing that particular sequence, but they picked it up the next. There's this even quality across what they need to physically execute for comedic purposes or some action purposes here. I mean, heck, even when Beardy Longayan, he plays with the shredder the paper prop that turns into noodles and the choreography surrounding that Paul I think is delightful it's cut together well and that that's why I mean that like there's no uh, missed opportunities and like a uh, woeful execution in any sequences really uh, and that that's a standard that uh, that makes sense for the Yuns because I, I think they they know this stuff uh, they know how to perform this technically and it's again it's so far removed from kung fu this is different this is something way different so it's very admirable in that regard the the sites they they put together and execute um, 
because it's not all on the set. It needs to put together in post-production and cut together. And it does. They have the vision to make it um, cut together, you know. It's one of those things that you will probably come away from thinking, oh my gosh, how did they do, you know, half of any of the things that they did there? And then the rest of it, you'll just be thinking about like, why why did I think of something so creative like that? Because it's it's just seeming, seemingly coming from out of left field. And, you know, who knows, like you joked, you know, did it come from just drunken afternoons after a traditional day of practice and then, you know, uh, playing around? I'm, I'm, I'm not saying they do drugs. I'm just saying that <laughs> they must have had fun sessions of some kind, whether midnight snack over a beer or two or something. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it, again, it's just knowing the material so well and knowing the process of filmmaking and, and thinking about what you can do, not just as a physical you know, action, stunt person, whatever, but things like camera angles and lighting and, and how certain things are going to look on, you know, two-dimensional film, that's a skill into and of itself because it's one thing to be able to think of, you know, what I can do if I stick myself behind a curtain, you know, like like that whole vaudeville little act where um, the main character seem, you know, seems to be playing himself in, in, as a shortened stature that's that's a very traditional sort of vaudevillian kind kind of act but then to add kung fu to that you know and to add choreography to that that is something that you just don't see in films what's some uh, favorite images uh, pre-finale that just made you either howl or just go wow what an idea what an and what execution well i really enjoyed the 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 fight with the uh the the pot ghost and, you know, again, a lot of that is referencing back to funeral culture and, you know, sort of ghost, ghost culture. There's a sequence where he, ha- he pulls out a paper sword because you burn paper effigies in the, the funeral process. And what's supposed to happen is that paper, paper effigies, once you burn them, they go to the spirit world as, you know, physical objects. And there's a whole industry. If you go to Hong Kong or you go to Taiwan or uh, other parts of... Asia, where you have strong Chinese communities, you can go to these shops which sell paper everything. They, they've got, you know, not just paper dolls, but paper iPhones, paper Mercedes, and you can buy these things and you burn them at the funeral. And again, the idea is that they, once they're burned, they become physical objects in the spirit world. Which is always fun to see manifested in Hong Kong movies uh, when characters are in the spirit world and actually are, you know, riding cars, driving cars that were burned right, for them. Right. I, I think there's a couple of sequences in uh, the Alan Tan movie, Till Death Do We Scare, where right. they are navigating the spirit world in one of those cars, uh, among other things. So, well, there's a sequence here where he pulls out a paper sword to fight with. And it's limp at first, you know, and so he then he has to like channel a little bit of energy. But when it straightens up and he, you know, like like cuts the edge of a table off with it and it's um, and then goes on to proceed to fight with it. So I really like the creativity that was culturally infused with stuff like that. I thought that some of the stuff they were doing in the early sequence with the sorcerer who uses bat style upside down, you know, scaling upside down. Um, so some great wire work for, you know, the the. the the 82 period, I think. The later sequence when they're actually doing the sorcerer competition for reasons is is equally fun, but there's a wooden man sequence where there's a body part that I'm just, you know, I saw it and I was like, wait a minute, 
wait a minute, is that what I think it is? And sure enough, it is exactly what I thought it was. Those are wooden balls. <laughs> I thought at first, and I was like, no, no, they didn't They didn't put those in there. And then, yep, yeah, it was exactly what they If we make there. a stick, man, with testes, then then that's okay. The sensors won't come, come at us. No? They're clever. I mean, uh, that's a whole contraption that obviously is on wires, and it's not extensively this, it's not this extensive animatronic, like, you know made by an effects house that they can shoot for 30 seconds continuously and, and it will move smoothly it's one of those things that where you need to convey it in a couple of edits for it to move you know whether they move a, an arm up in a position in one edit and then uh, reassemble it uh, using uh, you know by by winding the the film backwards whatever but it's not crude techniques by child children making this it, it Maybe I'm overselling it, but I think it's really elite filmmaking because it's there, it's made, it's not, it's not uh, clunky, Paul. It's not like, oh well, I could probably do that better on my phone because <laughs> uh, because it's 2019, bitch. Uh, no, it's not. It's it's really creative and so unique to this movie. It's not filmmaking that's behind the curve. If anything, especially at the time, they were furthering a type of effects work that that Shaw Brothers were also very good at. This is the era of 82, 83, 84, where Shaw Brothers were making off-the-wall type of movies in you know in the wake of Sue, but certainly the Shaw Brothers brought their own frenzied energy, you know, with Holy Flame of the Martial World and Busted Swordsman and uh, those kind of movies. So it's it's really a golden age of um, Hong Kong movies, like bringing, bringing it to this degree. But the Miracle Fighters, it... It's not overwhelming, right, in terms of the sights here. It's not too frenzied where you just get dizzy and don't understand sequences, correct? You, you really, you, you, you get to absorb them to, a, to an enough degree. Or what do you think? It's just an experience. You know, if you're somebody who enjoys martial arts films and you enjoy comedy, this is probably one of the pinnacle films that rests at the nexus of those two genres. Um, and if it's one that you haven't seen, I would, for me, I'd say, you know, uh, make an effort to see it because I think you will not come away. I mean, again, narratively, you might be saying, well, okay, but just the process of going through so many of these creative sequences, I, th- I don't think you will be uh, left not entertained. With so many Hong Kong movies under your belt, it's not like this revisit to the Miracle Fighters means that, oh, I've seen that a bunch of times and it's old hat by now. It, it feels unique to these makers and this movie definitely i mean especially if you compare it with a film that i think was a year earlier right um the legend of the owl which technically also martial arts comedy but is approaching comedy more in terms of the genre of these kinds of films you know the face-off and 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 stuff like that that's here but it's it this is much more about the physicality of of it and, and you know what they can do what they can get away with creatively and uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, the Sorcerer's Championship is uh, it has tons of highlights that really should be be experienced, uh, really. But um, anything goes, I suppose. Uh, but not any filmmaker can set up a camera and expect to be perceived as a great idea man, uh, because you you need to be good. And Yung Ping and his brothers, they they're all good. They to to get even in twenty nineteen to get us with these unpredictable sites you know whether it's the paper bridge obstacle chamber towards the end that's also riddled with snake uh, snakes and how each participant tackles that and obviously the stick man is this physical contraption with choreographed movement that that's just wonderful to watch but i think uh, 
my, my, my favorite gag is, is early in the movie because they are quarreling sorcerers and one of them has made a self-massager in the form of his rival literally has built a puppet that's massaging him and he's swearing at it like you're fool you're fool you're stupid and that was so funny i think i, I don't remember if it was if it was yun chun yan who had built lang Gayan or, or vice versa but uh, i thought that was uh, a wonderful contraption like their quarreling nature their, their rivalry it's uh, it's never ending so one of the characters are going to go that far and build a puppet out of his rival <laughs> that massages him and that'll show him Mm. which is rational so <laughs> well recommended uh, let, let, let's transition into something else uh, this movie has been remade or has it because uh, there is a chi- mainland chinese movie called the thousand faces of dunja directed by Yu Wu ping made in 2017 you confused the heck out of me and broke my brain in terms of well there's a remake but uh, it's unrelated so i asked you so where does the remake stop and start them is it even a remake so explain yourself uh, put it into context the thousand faces of uh, Junja. let's keep it simple is it a remake it, it is not a remake so how <laughs> do you connect it to, to the miracle fighters at all then you don't really it is it's the same title basically it's like uh if somebody made a film called star wars and it was completely different from star wars the, Ch- uh, the chinese title is it's exactly the same yeah, it's exactly the same. And I mean, there we talked a little bit too. There's a Taiwanese film called The New Miracle Fighters, which is the same Chinese title with the Chinese term new just put in the front of it. It's, it's, it's not, completely unrelated. And not, and not a good movie either. It was not very well made. This is, the, the, the new one is indicative of contemporary, big budget, you know, China co-production films. Lots of CGI fantastic art direction a story that's kind of moderate it nowhere comes near the level of creativity of of this film in terms of what it's doing there's some wire work again there's some flashy cgi that when i watched it again for this because i saw it a couple years ago when it came out doesn't hold up really well i must say it is somewhere in that nexus of the legend of zoo it's just it's one of those films that has elements of strangeness in it in terms of what the characters are doing and trying to achieve uh, you know not to get into a full review of it there are two characters in the film two of the lead characters that m- could possibly maybe potentially be seen as the old man young versions of the old man and old woman possibly you could read that in there but Again, with them not having names and, you know, no mention of sort of their history really uh, in in the 82 film, you know, that's just my reading of it, trying to connect the current film to a better film in some ways. So, I mean, it's a Choi Hawk script and production, you won't be directing. So does it have any element of like the the sort of cranked nature that Choi Hawk can bring to his movies, even in today's world? Because I I know, you know, the Detective D movies are good fun, but... This is Yumo Ping directing, though, so, um, you know, Cho Hak may not be visible or felt as such in the movie. I mean, there, in terms of some of the sequences, you can get a sense of that, especially in the heavy use of CG that seems to be the thing that he's drawn to, to these days. There's a lot of elements that you have seen before, especially in terms of what happens to the hero. It's one of these cases where the hero becomes a hero and he gets immense power without ever really having a achieved it he just kind of gets it through luck if you know what i'm saying one, one of these kinds of 
narrative arcs, which I don't really care for because it's like, you know, he didn't really earn anything yet. He's a nice guy, but okay. Um, but in terms of the other stuff that's going on in the plot, it's, again, a lot of big CG monsters or aliens, as they're referred to. And there's like early on, there's a bit of disguise going on. And as I understand it, the Chinese title itself, what that's referring to is a kind of geomancy that is indicative of sorcery skills that deal with deception and invisibility and misdirection and stuff. A lot of the stuff you see being done in Miracle Fighters, right? You don't really get a lot of that in the new film. Um, it's, again, it's a lot of fancy wire work. There's a couple of transformation sequences, I want to say, but it's a lot of like particle effects and, you know, people flinging powers out of their hands and stuff like that. It's not, it's not a lot of the comedic, like pretending to be somebody else. And uh, I think there was one face off early on in, in the film. So, and it sounded like it, the angles it took, its personal and unique angles, that wasn't fun enough either. You know, if you if you disconnected from the Miracle Fighters completely. Yeah, if as a standalone thing, it's an okay watch. It, it's again in there with like the Detective D series. Um, and and that kind of stuff. If you've found some level of entertainment with that, you know it's not terrible. Um, it's not like some some of them. How do I want to say this tactfully? <laughs> some of the not so good stuff that's come out of mainland China that's heavily reliant on CG um, in the last few years. But it's not some of the best either. It's it's kind of just there in the middle. If you get a chance to see it, it's it's worth a watch. It's not going to be memorable. It's not going to knock your socks off. I think. Yeah, and I kind of trust Troy Harker based on the Detective D movies. He's got a grasp on the the mix of uh, CG and fantasy. But uh, again, he's he's writing and producing this one, so um, it's not uh, purely him. But uh, uh, yeah, so the Miracle Fighters is still its own thing, and uh, they weren't trying to catch a new audience uh, with with this old old property or what do you want to uh, whatever you want to say so it, uh, because then when news emerged it sounded like yeah they're re- remaking miracle fighters okay not the biggest classic from you whooping but it has a cult audience but in the end they uh, they weren't connecting themselves uh, as such to it so like there's no there's no bat bat saucer or flying bat or whatever in this one i suppose you know it's it's one of those ones that it has weird clans you know like there's a hell clan and you know, the Hell Clan leader kind of looks a little bit like a zombie. There's a Fire Clan, a guy who, you know, is like this old, you know, it's, it's got that kind of sensibility to it. Um, very much sort of out of, pulled out of traditional, you know, fantasy literature or Chinese comics um, that you, you might have encountered in, in, you know, other properties as well. And again, the, the, the arc of the hero is not all that interesting what ends up happening to him and how he ends up becoming powerful. But the other supporting characters who are all part of this clan called the, they are the Wu Jia clan, I believe. Um, they're, they're all a bit more interesting uh, when they're on screen and it sets itself up for uh, a, a sequel that as far as I know is as of yet uh, unannounced. So who knows if there's more to come. Yeah. Cho Hak is more on his journey to the West detective D run than anything else. And Yumbo Ping made monster Z. So, um, you know, go back to traditional martial arts. So maybe it's a one-off and uh, they're, they're moving forward with some new, new material. 
but we'll see. I'll, I have it, so I'll watch it eventually. But uh, it's not not a priority. A priority is more like uh, I gotta watch the third Detective D movie. I've yet to see it because I've liked the first two ones. So, so I, I believe in Choi Hak. Maybe I'll find courage to um, finish that damn Tiger, Tiger Mountain movie that I never finished because it was like. Oh, this 3D is annoying. But may- maybe now I'm, I'm more comfortable with uh, his 3D touch because uh, no, not to make an, a, a big uh, big fuss about Detective D this episode anyway, but uh, when watching the second Detective D movie, in 2D, granted, but you can spot where the 3D is, it looked enjoyable. It looked like it could have been an enjoyable 3D movie in the, in the case of the second Detective D movie, the prequel. But in, in Tiger Mountain, that was just like, come on. It's a gritty war movie mm-hmm. in 3D. <laughs> hey, speaking of that, uh, therefore you must have uh, disliked the Detective D prequel as well, right? The What is it? The Rise of the Sea Dragon. Did not care for that as much, but the third one I really liked, although a lot of people were down on it. I thought it was... Um, was that still technically a prequel? Were they still... A still, bit... still, still a prequel. Um, it's, it's the actor who's playing young Detective D, but he's a bit more mature. Um, I like the story. I felt the effects were not overly heavy-handed um and i just uh, i thought it had really good production values and i i I enjoyed it a lot more than the second one so but you know give me andy lau come on i want more andy lau (laughs) yeah uh, can't argue against you against you there but uh, who knows you know but um uh, it would be welcome it would be welcome um maybe split into alternate dimensions and timelines and blah 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 and uh, they can have both of them something (laughs) i don't know uh, but we'll see. Anyway, as for availability of the Miracle Fighters, it was issued on uh, Universe and Joy Sales uh, DVDs. Uh, the latter was part of the Legendary Collections, but uh, collection. But both editions uh, looks to be out of print and uh, out of stock from these uh, second-hand, um, uh, first-hand sources. But uh, but uh, there are some second-hand choices available that are way too overpriced, uh, whether they're forty US dollars or seventy US dollars. So not really worth it at that price so that's like a pause but uh, if you don't need subtitles the french label uh, hk video put out the movie in a double pack together with the prodigal son don't know how they reasoned in terms of connecting the movies but uh, it was uh, put out uh, alongside that movie in a remastered print but it does not have english subtitles but if you don't need it those can be still uh, can still be found uh, secondhand and sometimes quite um, quite reasonably priced those uh, hk video editions uh, they're, they're quite uh, in demand but uh, you can get them for you know 20 30 euros or, or whatever which is reasonable considering you get uh, two movies in the rather rather nice looking uh, double packs uh, so i like that idea anyway uh, that's uh, that's us for this episode we're gonna conclude it really quickly after having looked at young and dangerous uh, free and the miracle fighters so for all your podcast on fire network needs go to podcastonfire.com where all relevant links will be available to you social media and trailer wise and so forth so i'm gonna conclude it there and uh, my good friend uh, co-host uh, paul fox uh, if you want to uh, give a plug to your podcast and podcast uh, vast podcast uh, archive uh, how far back do you guys go to uh, 2009 or 10 or yeah 2009 was when we launched um so yeah everything's there for now and if you are interested please check us out at uh, concast.com everybody re-listen to episode one and uh, then message paul to tell him please how don't. good of a job he did Episode one was so bad. I'm so scared. I'm scared. What is this? Is anyone listening? 
Like, uh, I, I just assume uh, you're the squeaky teen from The Simpsons in episode one. <laughs> I'm still the squeaky teen from The Simpsons. <laughs> so there it is. Uh, uh, links to uh, Paul's uh, and uh, Kevin's uh, podcast will be available. But uh, this has been uh, our episode on Young and Dangerous 3. And uh, we'll see. Spin-offs or Young and Dangerous 4 next for us. Who knows? But uh, I've been Kennedy regardless. And with me was Paul Fox of the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Bye-bye.